Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Melanie Parrish, author, public speaker, and host of the Experimental Leader podcast. She is also the founder of Experimental Leader Academy and Master Certified Coach. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Douglas, it's amazing to be here with you. So happy to have you and excited to lean into experimental leadership and all the great things that we already started talking about in the pre-show. So as usual, let's get started hearing a little bit about how you got your start. How did you get curious about leadership and, and coaching and supporting others through their journey into experimental leadership? Yeah, so I've been coaching for 23 years and having, you know, thousands of conversations with leaders over the years. And about 10 years ago, I started to realize sort of the juxtaposition between experimenting and leadership and how there's actually sort of a set of practices that go with that. I was working in tech consulting and I realized that I can't I kept telling one of my clients to write this book and he kept going, yeah, I could, I guess. And finally I realized it was my book, not his book. And so I wrote the book and, uh, and so I love my book. I love the experimental leader. It's I somehow by magic, I wrote a better book than I meant to write with great editor and, you know, lots of people pushing on the ideas and making them better. And I sort of look at it sometimes and I'm like, wow, that that worked out pretty well. Like I really, I like the ideas in it and I like that it continues to push my thinking. Even it came out two years ago, I worked on it for seven years. I continue to grow my thinking as I bounce off of it. Often people tell me after they read it, they're like, oh, now I have to start again. I didn't want to write a book that people would read the first chapter and go, oh, all the ideas are in the first chapter. And so it's a pretty rich book. And actually, on my podcast right now, we're doing book clubs. So we're going through it chapter by chapter, uh, one chapter a month. So if anybody wants to join in this year, it's kind of fun to, to do a little book club. Yeah, that's really cool to kind of step through the pieces with folks. And I imagine that creates a dialogue with the community. Yeah, I hope so. And I hope so. It's I've I've recorded one episode. We started in, you know, just now and each of my guests will, you know, read a chapter and we'll hear their ideas on the concept. So I want to hear their leadership ideas, too. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about this new experiment. A little scared. You know, that's one of the things that experimentation always brings, I think, is that little 
gasp intake of breath when you do an experiment that puts you, you know, sort of knocks you off your feet a little. Uh, what if it doesn't work? What if, you know, it's a little out of control, a little bit of chaos, but it's fun too. Yeah, I was just chatting with the team the other day about, you know, there's a difference between walking into uncomfortable situations and reacting to that by recoiling versus responding with curiosity. Mm, yeah, I absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, anyone who does facilitation for a living or anyone who runs meetings or helps people dialogue with each other, there's both, you know, that sort of edge and then the the thrill <laughs> and the joy when it goes well. And there's always, you know, sort of the possibility of it not going so well. I don't know. I, I love that edge. It's it's mm. a fun edge. But it also opens the door to possibility, which is the heart of experimenting as a leader. If you don't experiment as a leader, you're stuck with the status quo. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think it came natural for me as someone who studied biology and chemistry and, you know, just like yeah. I was always in lab, you know, and even writing software, you know, there were always moments where we made, I had to make a little tiny little thing to understand if my algorithm was going to work, right? Like I needed to make a little simple thing and go, oh, is this, is this like a prototype or like make a, uh, something that might be representative of the bigger thing. And, and I don't know if you run into this, but the thing I notice so often is the missing piece is the, uh, the ability to, to see how they can make it smaller, mm. right? Because if your experiment's so big, it can be really, really scary. And the consequences might be really big too. Absolutely. I, I had a conversation this weekend with a guy who is experimenting around, he's using the human brain as a model to make cell phone batteries lasts longer because human brains are really efficient as power sources. He's a researcher at Waterloo and he's using them as a model. And then he's using them to program in analog. Like, I don't know. I was so fascinated. Like my mind was so blown by the time he left that I've been thinking about it all week. Like this idea that you can, you know, just change everything by changing a fundamental concept in your experimentation. Now your mind's blown a little too. I can yeah, see you know, in your it, face. It, it, the, the thing that made me think about was actually, I'm, I'm kind of an, an audio geek. And um, there's this really interesting company that makes analog hardware. And the analog hardware they create, they're using analog circuits that are basically discrete mathematics uh, like op amps and things can do mathematics and they're basically recreating the digital algorithms of the digital clones of really cool esoteric sixties equipment. So you've got like this hard to find, very expensive to make tubes, transformers and things. And people have recreated digital clones of them. And then they made analog <laughs> <laughs> versions of the digital algorithm. So it's like, I don't know. It's like really fascinating when people, respond it's just the inventiveness that just comes out of people building on top of what other people have built so fascinating well and and it's it's like when you're dealing with preference there's not a best practice mm. 
I had this pile of CDs and cassette tapes. And coincidentally, like, I don't know, a decade ago, I bought this antique box looking thing that plays records and CDs and cassette tapes and Bluetooth. And I kept thinking I had to get rid of my, the best practice was to get rid of my CDs and my cassette tapes because I had, you know, Spotify. But I never could quite do it because I had this attachment to like, I bought this cassette at this concert and I bought this one at this concert. And I had an attachment to the physical thing. And so finally, I just put them all away, you know, kind of in order in a drawer. And I've had so much fun playing them and the joy is all there. And it's a different joy than I get from, you know, playing a Spotify list, which is also joy. But there's something about the way Robert Earl Keane sounds on a cassette tape from 20 years ago that's really different than how Robert Earl Keane sounds on Spotify. And so we have to be careful not to best practice our way out of our joy. I love that. And it's it's sort of like efficiency can often... I would say often might even be the right word. It's like efficiency will be diametrically opposed to joy a lot of times, right? It's like if we make everything just working as perfectly as it could and just right at our fingertips, we may miss out on that nostalgia, for instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. There there was, you know, as you get busy when you're a professional and you start to hire people to do things, you know, you hire, we have a gardener, we have somebody to clean the house. And my husband sort of joked like, oh, do we need to, you know, hire someone to swim in our pool and sit by our pond to enjoy things (laughs) because we're too busy to enjoy our lives. And that's obviously, you know, ridiculous. And, uh, you know, he was being sarcastic (laughs) as he sometimes is. I love it. That's a fun thought experiment, right? Like, at what point do you draw the line? And I think that's probably different for everyone, which brings in a point we were talking about in the pre-show chat around, you mentioned radical inclusivity. And specifically, you know, some things that come up for me as we were just chatting was, you know, this idea of, you know, people from different generations are going to have affinity to different products. You mentioned CDs, and, you know, there's vinyl, there's eight tracks, there's, you know, we, we all have different uh, memories and fondness of different things, different associations that folks have. You know, there's so many TikTok videos of people interviewing their children and go, what are the yellow pages? You know, and they have no idea. What's dial up? And so if we're going to be truly inclusive, we need to be mindful of the lived experiences that people are bringing to the space. What's the neurodiversity coming in? So it's interesting segue into that topic. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. I know you were saying, you mentioned your husband's funny thoughts around, do we pay someone to be at our pond? But um, I think you were saying that he was practicing some really cool radical inclusivity as well. Yeah, he's been doing some amazing things in his organization. One is that he's been talking about personality as a place to welcome diversity, that everyone doesn't have to be you know, nice all the time, that people who are fractious or have sort of personalities that are annoying, that you can be actually radically inclusive of those personalities. I'm not talking about people who are racist or sexist or those kinds of things. I'm actually just talking about people who, you know, always are a little sour or who aren't 
particularly friendly or, you know, whatever it is. But I, I, and he, he hasn't made any mandates or edicts. He's just introduced the idea that what if, what if this is a, a way that one could be radically inclusive, that one could, you know, just be curious about what it, not making that person conform to some norm or social standard. And I think it's a fascinating thought as we, you know, grapple with EDI and equity, diversity, and inclusion, and, you know, broaden our scope of inclusion to include people who are different in a variety of ways. I love this thought of, you know, just sort of general kindness as we welcome those who are less skilled into the dialogue. I think that we have come to a time where we like talking to people who are like us. And I think that these kinds of thoughts, I, I don't think that talking to people that are the same as us all the time are, are good for leading innovation. I think that conversations that are with people that are different than us, who have ideas that make us think or even make us angry or make us question our own values are good for us. I think that we're becoming less and less patient with those conversations. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned patience because we talk a lot about, you know, leaning into the conflict or slowing things down so those moments can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and I do, I do some marriage coaching and I think about like, there's a right level of heat. I want people not to be so comfortable that they won't say what's on their mind. I want them to speak their truth and I don't want them to be so heated that they harm each other. So there's a sweet spot for, and, and I work with teams as well. And it's, the, it's about the same, like there's a right level of heat on mm -hmm. a team to help them speak truth and even push the limit of what they might be of their comfort zone to get sort of into a growth zone. But you also don't want to damage relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Like, what does that range look like or that zone look like? And it can vary based on teams or mm. groups. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I think, I think um, you know, I based, you know, there's also a sort of personality profile, like software teams tend to be pretty conflict averse as a, mm. a rule. A sales team might have more range for, you know, duking it out about, you know, feelings or expressing feelings more broadly People have different levels of skill as well. And I, and I, you know, as somebody who teaches leadership skills and I believe that people can learn those skills so that they, they can increase that range so that they can speak more freely. They can learn the skill of both speaking freely, but also receiving feedback and receiving ideas more freely. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing that kind of came to mind too was sometimes People talk a lot about psychological safety, and, I, and I've found that quite often people misunderstand it, you know. And I like to go back to Amy C. Edmondson's definition personally, and when you really think about it, a really safe organization could seem really messy from the outside, right? If they're speaking the truth, it might seem like, oh, man, they, they're – because if you look at a team that's not safe and everyone's quiet and hiding everything – that might, it might seem like a really efficient, well-oiled machine. 
But you go look over here, and these people are like, oh, "This is this looks kind of messy," and like, "Whoa, what are what are they, what are they like? Call what's happening here, right?" And it's because everyone feels safe to speak the truth, and it's out in the open, and they're moving through it. And I'm wondering if that resonates with things you've seen on teams or any stories you've seen there. Yes, and I think that just basic interpersonal relationship data says that the broader the number of topics, the fewer off-limit topics there are, Mm. the more healthy the relationships are. That goes for couples as well as teams. And and that data (laughs) is, I think I learned that data like when I was in university a million years ago, you know, that, that as relationships are ending, the number of topics you can talk about diminishes. And we see organizations that are super siloed they have a lot of things that we just don't talk about anymore. Oh, we don't talk about that. We don't, you know, that happened so many years ago. We don't talk about that. If you can say anything and people go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And it may not always feel good. Like, I think that that the idea that psychological safety means that work feels good all the time is probably, it's probably not a healthy thought. It's not mm. a healthy organization. You're not bouncing off of things and you're probably not innovating. If you can't say, if you can't put an idea forth that's stupid, then you're probably in trouble as an organization. And if you can't say that's a stupid idea, at some point after you've, you know, looked for proof of concept, you've looked for what might work or what didn't, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to say that too early, but if you can't say that later, then it's also not a healthy organization because Mm. then you're going to spend millions trying to go forth with an idea that, you know, really didn't look like it was going to work at the outset. I think it's super important to take that holistic lens versus thinking about any of these concepts in work and meetings and collaborations and relationships and thinking, oh, this is the silver bullet. It's things still might be a little messy, but how do we go in with grace and curiosity and support and love and all those things? I mean, part of the whole experimental leader concept is that you want safe to fail experiments. So you don't want to have to come up with an idea that's a million dollar idea. You want to come up with a hundred dollar idea and test it a million times. So it doesn't have to be perfect at the get go. That's not an experimental culture. That's an expensive culture. Right. It's also confirmation bias, too, a lot of times. Absolutely. And so when people live and die by their ideas, and this is part of the heart of the book, when people have to live and die by their ideas, they have to convince somebody, my idea is worth investing in. That's Mm. not an experimental culture. That's a culture that people are not safe to fail. And it's a culture that doesn't stand behind the ideas of all the people on their team and try them. That's a culture that, you know, we're looking for our, it's a competitive culture where we're looking for our teammates to fail so we can win. You know, it it also strikes me, that's a culture that's all about buy-in versus ownership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always have loved the idea that, you know, you're brainstorming ideas and as soon as the idea goes into the center of the room, everybody has equal stake in it. What are we going to do with that idea? And then, you know, we may decide we don't want to do anything with that idea. And that wasn't Bill's idea that we decided to trash. It was everybody's idea that we decided to trash or go forward with. It was just an idea that we came up with as a team. I love that. Yeah, it's kind of coalescing the collective intelligence. Mm-hmm. 
I love it. Yeah. So you were also mentioning, and this is kind of coming back to some of the radical inclusivity stuff, this idea of calling people in versus calling them out. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, sort of as the deeper I get into leadership, the more compassion just sits with me, the more I feel like that's the probably the most important leadership skill. It doesn't mean that we know how to do it. You know, we I can say compassion is really important, but I don't know that that means somebody, you know, knows how to do that. But I've been thinking a lot about Loretta Ross and the Mm. idea of calling people in versus calling people out this year. I believe she coined the phrase women of color. Also, the idea of reproductive rights, like way back in the 60s. And she's uh, sort of introduced this concept of instead of calling people out, you know, you get a pronoun wrong for a trans person and you ca- somebody calls you out publicly. There's sort of a different idea behind this of calling people in, of saying, hey, I, you know, I, I know you didn't mean to. And hey, we use, you know, this person's using this, but you do it privately. You do it kindly. You do it out of love. And I, I think that cancel culture is really harmful to people. We sting. I can, I know the times I, I can tell, you know, I remember the times I've been called out. I have a queer identity and I've been called out, (laughs) you know, for things somebody thought I didn't say right publicly. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that all the times I could name them right now. And it's so harmful. It hurts because my heart was in the right place when I was speaking and I think everyone has that sort of experience and, and people become afraid to speak. And I'm, I believe so strongly in dialogue that I want us to have ways that we can help people grow without harming them and without prohibiting dialogue because that dialogue is so powerful. I want people to practice saying people's pronouns for the first time. Mm. We have a new person in our lives uh, who's using they, them pronouns. And I spent the weekend with them and I got them wrong so many times, so many times. And they were so kind to me every single time. But by the end of the weekend, I kind of had it right. And I was so happy that I had had the chance to practice all weekend. And I think I actually started to establish a better neuropathway because I hadn't done well before, even though I have a lot of people in my life who have changed pronouns, who use they, them pronouns, it just is a difficult neuropathway for me. Yeah, I think there's quite a few things there. The one thing I'll underscore the most is this rehearsing or the practicing. And I think that's key to almost anything. You know, and it's and it's also the reason why so many training programs fail, you know, just like you get bombarded with all the stuff and then you never practice it. Imagine if someone just told you how to ride a bike, you know, for like two <laughs> weeks straight. It's like you're never gonna it's never gonna work, right? And also the other thing that struck me is if you're in the meeting and you want to encourage dialogue and something happens, it can be healthy to call something out, to notice it, to label it. But we need to do it in a graceful, loving way. And then maybe invite dialogue about it, right? Like maybe we'll just like say that happened. What does everyone think about that? And then guide that conversation. And I'm going to say that if you do that, I think you're actually calling them in. So, Mm -hmm. and and here's the way that I think that you're calling them in. You say, hey, I don't think you meant to do this. I don't think you meant to cause harm. 
So you affirm them as a human as you do that. I, I still am going to, I'm going to stand by calling them in instead of calling them out. So calling them out to me means that you've made them wrong in some way. And calling them in, you're affirming who they are as a person, you're affirming their intent that they didn't mean to cause harm or they didn't mean to do it or they didn't mean. Um, and, and so I still think, even if you do it publicly, because sometimes you have to, like, hey, we're going to use this pronoun or, or just say the pronoun quickly and move on. I mean, that's the other thing is to do it with as little fanfare as possible. Like, not to make them wrong, but just, you know, just to, if somebody says he instead of she, you go she, and then <laughs> that's it. You're done. There's no, there's no chastising. Like, you, they didn't get it. Oh, you said the pronoun wrong. You don't have to say that part. You can just say the pronoun correctly. So as little fanfare as possible. I, st I think that's part of the calling in instead of calling out. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I want to also anchor back to another thing you were saying earlier in the pre-show, which was this idea of, you know, so much of the, this leadership work is about mindset. And I think this idea of calling in and calling out and how we approach conversations and you know, what's important, what we're going to prioritize and how we show up is very much mindset. Yeah, I think one of the most important things for any leader in any forum is to facilitate a culture that provides feedback loops because it's really difficult to lead without information. So in meetings, in written communication, in you, you as a leader, you want to open your people. You want them to come to you. You want them to share information freely with each other. And almost everything leadership related, whether it's the way that you interact with people or the way that they, the way that you develop them, you're wanting them to take work forward on their own, but you're also wanting you, them to communicate with you as they need help or as they are developing the people below them. It's all about the opening of communication channels and the opening of feedback loops throughout the organization. You know, the communication channels are so, so important. And it reminds me of Conway's law and the idea that, you know, our org structures and how they enable or disable communication flow has such a big impact on the work we do. Yeah, absolutely. You you also mentioned this idea of uh, we were kind of talking about this internal state of the leader, and you mentioned this idea of having an empty well. And I thought it was really quite interesting. Love the I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing a little bit about that. I think I was talking about, and I I think about it a lot. the The idea of making sure as a leader to uh, foster joy in my own life, to help people that I coach to foster joy uh, and rejuvenation in their own lives. Because I, I think that often a leader's biggest resource is their own internal state. Um, and it's the one resource you can't you know, beg, borrow, or steal, you have to uh, create on your own. Uh, and and it's sort of, it, it can be elusive, but 
uh, once you learn how to rejuvenate it, you can rejuvenate it most of the time. I, I think there are times that you can't rejuvenate that well, or it's difficult. I, I find it, have found it difficult when I've had a death in the family to, you know, rejuvenate that well and, it, and have, have felt the loss of that because it just, you know, through loss, you, you can't keep filling because you've, you've lost something dear uh, and still you're having to wake up and lead every day. But I think those things happen in life. And so you need that well to be full when those things happen so that you can, you know, you're not on empty when those things happen. I think that sometimes when we're stressed as leaders, we, you know, might tend to go for the martini and the staying up late at night instead of the, the run or the yoga or the, mm. um, the deep sleep or the, you know, hike in the woods. And I, I never know what it is for my clients. You know, I know I've, I've tried to learn what it is for myself. Everybody has to find their own path to that rejuvenation. I have clients who, you know, I have one client, it's group video games, you know, the ones that the big ones where they play all night long. And that's not it for me, I can tell you, but it is for them. For me, you know, it's, it's massage, chiropractic, swimming, I, being in mm. water is, is it for me? Do, do you know what it is for you? Yeah. I mean, there's a few things. I, um, I exercise. So Pilates and boxing and the sauna, those are really amazing moments. Also time with friends and good food is always like really yeah. just kind of the, the time evaporates, you know, whether, whether we're playing board games or going for a walk, it kind of doesn't matter. It's like the dialogue with, with good old friends that just kind of just make, melts the time. Yeah. We have a table by our pool and like the laughter by the pool with, you know, things cooking on the grill. Like there, yeah, it's timeless. It's like, it's always too fast. Yeah. Mm. I, there, those timeless moments. I think that's a good key that you're into that space. Yeah. It's like a form of flow, right? It's a, it's a form of flow, but it is like, you can almost feel the well filling as mm. you're, as you're in it. Like you, you're mm. almost like, oh. And, and I know when we're afterward, my husband and I are like, oh, that was good. Like, it was really good. Yeah, super cool. Amazing. So I'm just thinking about the work you're doing around the Experimental Leader Academy and what the future might hold. I know you had mentioned some current work you're doing around kind of bridging the gap for new leaders. Yeah. Because the current book's pretty in-depth and experimenting is kind of a more advanced topic for leaders. So I'd love to hear like what you're working on and what's kind of coming next. Yeah. So we have a program called Leadership Essentials and it's for people leading a team and we're super excited about it. It's having amazing results for people that are doing it. But I realize that not everybody who wants to do leadership is leading a team. And so this fall, we're going to have a brand new program. So we'll be piloting a brand new program, a leadership program for individual contributors. It's sort of the, and, and I don't even have a great working title or anything marketing to talk about, but my brain is super excited about it because I think that people, like leadership is a state of mind and there's things like proactivity and how the impact that you want to have on the world and what's your unique place in the world? What do you bring to the world that are 
just super exciting things that also sort of lead to that workplace fulfillment that I think is really important for people. And so all that'll be in this program. So that's what I'm working on right now. I'm still in the phase where I'm like working on it when I like, you know, I'm driving in my car and going, you know, hanging out outside and, you know, it's in my brain so far, but I'm starting to think about mapping it out and we'll record it. And I think it'll be sort of a 30-day program. That's my mm. current thought is it'll be a 30-day program that probably nobody will really finish in 30 days, but that's, it'll, that's how I'm imagining it is, is that you could do it, you know, a little daily piece to, to grow as a leader. Yeah, I think continued commitment and practice makes a huge difference in just the consistency in building things up. Yeah. I, I mean, having been a coach, I've been a coach for 23 years, and it's all about those steps forward for me. Like, I've watched people transform their lives. My clients stay with me a really long time. Like, I have a client I've had for 22 years, I think. Watching what can happen in that span, nothing really happens every week. But over a little bit every week changes everything over, you know, a five-year period or a seven-year period. You know, people transform their lives and their income and their, and their work and their home lives and their, you know, everything can change in that period of time. So mm. it's fun to be on those journeys. I really want to be able to do that for people in a variety of ways, too. Yeah, it reminds me too of in those moments is where the realizations happen. You know, to your point, you can't just introduce the concept of the well filling up and go, how does that work for you? And have someone immediately know, you know, they might have to work, <laughs> sit with it, work through it, explore it, talk about it, monitor it. It definitely is true for um, deeper kinds of things around, you know, what kind of like personality traits are holding them back and things like that. And so it just takes time to have those things reveal themselves. The hardest work I ever do with any client is to get the negative voices in their head to stop. Mm. That takes, that's, it's the longest and mm. the hardest work. But once they stop, then we can start filling the well. It's almost impossible to fill the well when they've got some sort of internal saboteur beating them up, you know, between sessions, like they, they can't get any traction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a serious threat. I think everyone suffers, but I, I would say everyone suffers from it, but it's disproportionate. You know, it some, is, yeah. some have it worse than others. And I would say a lot of times it's based on biases that are ingrained from a young age, right? Lisa Danley did some really interesting work around those voices and sort of aging those voices. So sometimes you can sort of guess what age they are. So were you an infant? Were you three? Were you five? Were you nine? And if you ask people, they often know how old they were when those voices started. And it's interesting to sort of play with dialogue with those voices and things as a way to, to change them. Her work's really interesting around those voices. Incredible. Yeah. I'm not super familiar with her. I'll have to check her out and get her in the, in the show notes so others can, can dig into you. Yeah. L-E-Z-A. Lisa Danley. Awesome. Well, Melanie, it's been a pleasure chatting. I want to make sure we have some time here before we run out of time for you to leave us with a final thought. 
Well, it's just been a pleasure to be here. And I think that my biggest, you know, challenge to people is to start experimenting, start looking for places that you can experiment and look for experiments that are small and are safe to fail and that you time them to be short, like a day or a week prototype, put them into place and then measure them. If anybody wants to get a Kata card for me that would tell them a really mm. good process to go through to question an experiment, they're welcome to reach out to me at melanie at experimentalleader.com. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting. Hopefully we will keep the conversation going. I hope you have a great day. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. Great conversation. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.